If you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 1, and then you can put a little thumb in Mark chapter 6. By the way, that right there I did with them is going to tie into what I'm talking about in my sermon today. So we'll see if we can kind of match this whole thing up together and make it all count. Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 6, that's where we're going to be in, but I need to lead up to that point. This is like the day that everything technological goes wrong. My, my tablet is not scrolling. There we go. We can get into that. So we'll get to Mark chapter 1 and 6, but I need to, I need to build us up to that point. So let me start with this question. What in your mind is the biggest threat to the church? What in your mind is the biggest threat to the church or, or Christianity or whatever you might call it as, as a whole? This has always been some sort of ongoing conversation since I have been in a pastoral role in some capacity, constantly wondering, like, what, what is the threat to the church? And sometimes it, the conversation lands on, like, viable concerns uh, and issues, and sometimes it lands in just ridiculous conspiracy theories. Um, I'll never forget a couple years ago when I was pastoring in Socorro. Uh, this was back when I had a Facebook and was one of the monumental reasons why I decided I don't need a Facebook anymore. Um, but I had like four or five people tag me or send me this video that was going around predominantly like fundamental conservative Facebook. Some of you may have seen it, and if you bought into it, and now I'm about to kick it to this curb and I offend you, I'm sorry. That's not the attention of it. But it was this video of this woman, and she was at some sort of like Christian booth fair where people were set up, and the top of her little like booth said, why Satan is in monster energy drinks. And there was this video of her giving this full-fledged spiel about how monster energy drinks are the way Satan gets into your household. She proceeds to go on and explain about how the logo of Monster Energy Drinks, if you've seen this, it's like an M, but, but it looks like three of the Hebrew letter Vavs. And the Hebrew letter Vavs, that's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And what Monster Energy Drinks are really doing is it's Vav, 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 or in Hebrew, they didn't have numbers, they used letters, it was 666. This is how Satan gets into your household. And people were sending this to me like it was the most profound thing they had ever discovered. Philip, I never knew this is how Satan gets into our houses. It's like, is Satan that dumb? Like, that would be real easy. It's like, all right, guys, let's not buy monster energy drinks. We solved that problem. Move on to the next. Like, is that it? And obviously, I'm not like endorsing monster energy drinks as like a wonderful company. They have curse words on their cans, and that's its own. But come on, man. Like, is that how Satan gets in? Have you guys encountered these types of responses to, like, what is the biggest threat to Christianity? Kelsey, I'm going to switch over to this handheld mic. Is that okay with you? Yeah? We'll see if that one will... will All right. Thank you, Wayne. Sometimes you just never know what the cause of that is. So now I, I just have to get used to holding a handheld mic. That should solve that. Have you guys encountered those types of people that, like, they are always concerned? There's always been this, like, subsect of Christianity that has been an outcry fear against whatever may be popular. So, so Pokemon, Dungeons and Dragons, these are the pastors. are like fidget spinners, more like fidgeting sinners, and we can't. And, like, that's, that's ridiculous, right? We, we know that to be ridiculous. But have you encountered that type of thing? Because it's all, it's all over the place. Like, what's the biggest threat to Christianity? Well, it must be whatever mainline culture says is popular. 
And yeah, there's some ridiculousness out there. But, it, but in my 20-something years of kind of like cognitive understanding of this question, I've watched as multiple different, almost really solid-sounding alarms have went off about what is the biggest threat to the church. And so I'll never forget, I was in fourth grade when 9-11 happened, so I was pretty, pretty young. Um, but then coming out of that, there was this whole kind of phase where the biggest threat to Christianity was seen as militant Islam. That was the threat. They were going to come in and force Shiara law on, um, on, on America. And it was like Subway's going to take away bacon from their sandwiches because of this. And this is the biggest threat to America. You guys may have remembered that kind of phase. Back in like 2010, we moved past that. Uh, into the biggest threat was like the popular level of postmodernism. Everything's relative. What you believe to be true is true for you, and what I believe to be true is true for me. And so I spent hours, hours of my college classes with my theology professors kind of talking about ways to debunk this type of worldview, that things can't be relative. Uh, Even more recently, as we've kind of uh, gotten into this age of polarization of politics and secularization of culture. It seems like the church has come out and said the biggest threat to American church or to the church is the the liberal left or it's Marxism or it's science or whatever you want to point to. And my point in all of this is not to reinstate fear and outcry because we sure seem to like to talk about this a lot. And honestly, like maybe that's rightly so. Have you done a Google search anytime recently and looked at just modern Christian statistics? If you want to be encouraged, it's not a great way to start your day, right? I'll give you just a couple. Uh, Back in January, the Institute for Family Studies put out an article called The Decline in Church Attendance in COVID America. And in their article, they said, over the last 10 years, this is not just COVID, over the last 10 years, Americans identifying as Christians have dropped from 75% to 63%. So, decade of just constant dropping. Last year, Gallup Research put out an article uh, that they called, The U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time. And so they had been asking people, Uh, hey, do you identify as a member of a religious organization? And that wasn't just church. That was uh, church, mosque, synagogue. Do you identify as a member of some sort of religious organization? And for the first time in documented American history, that number is below 50%. So to, to some credit, like we don't do, most churches don't do church membership in the same way that was used to be done. You don't like put a card on file that you move around from church to church. That's just kind of a thing that's starting to fall to the wayside. So there could be some indication to that. But when you take that statistic and that question and you break it down from generation to generation, it's not a fun trend to look like. In fact, they did this and they found that about 66% of people born before 1946 identify as being a member of a church. That number then drops to only 58% for the baby boomer generation. And then it's right at 50% for Gen X. And then it drops all the way down to my generation for millennials to 36%. And they're not really sure what Gen Z is because they're still kind of coming out of high school. But all kind of perspective outlooks looks like it's going to be even lower than the millennial generation. In fact, a quote from that article said, While the precise number of church closures are elusive, a conservative estimate is that thousands of U.S. churches close every year. So it's not a fun topic to talk about. 
but it's one at this point I imagine we're all pretty aware of. So whatever it is that's threatening the church, it's arrived. It's here. And it has been a slow, gradual process to the point that most of us don't even know we're wet yet as this kind of just fades in. So, so what is to blame for this? Is, like, is it monster energy drinks? Has the church just went too much into like going monster energy drinks? I don't think so. Was the church like too quick to embrace fidget spinners? Has there been a silent attack from an organized group of people? And in my estimation, when I read through the Bible, what I find is that Satan is far more crafty than what any of us think, able to weasel himself into places we never would even think to check. This is why the serpent shows up in the perfect garden of Eden in Genesis 3. This is why in Job chapter 1, Satan enters in with the rest of the angels. He finds himself in places that we never thought he could arrive. Satan doesn't need a monster energy drink to get into your house. He has far better ways that you don't even know about. This is what's threatening the church. So what is to blame? And while I understand that pinpointing a single cause fails to do justice to the complexity of the situation, I think there's one uh, particular angle that's worth talking about. One that's worth exploring a little bit. So back in May, uh, we spent the entire month of May, all five weeks, talking about the Holy Spirit. Talking about who is the Holy Spirit, what is his role in our lives, how do we surrender to him. And kind of at the start of that series, one of the big points I made is that difference between Hebrew culture and the difference between the American culture when dealing with spiritual matters, particularly matters of the Holy Spirit. So in the Hebrew culture, the word for, Hebrew, uh, the word for spirit is the word ruach. And it can be translated not only spirit, but it can be translated wind. It can be translated breath. In the Hebrew mind, the same thing that moves the trees that you cannot see is the very power of God inflating your lungs and bringing you life. So the spirit that animates the world around me every time I breathe in is animating me. The spirit was as close to them as a breath cycle. It was just what they breathed. That was how aware they are of the Holy Spirit in their lives, of the Spirit of God in their lives. You fast forward to modern American culture, do we think that way? No, not at all. And it's not to blame anything for that, but we've just, we breathe in, you know, oxygen and nitrogen and this hybrid air that helps give, we don't think about it that way. And so when we begin to contrast this to today, we've seen that we do not have these ingrained rhythms in our lives to continually reveal the reality of God and his working spirit. Instead, what, what do we have, right? We have a push notification to our phones that charms off at like 8 o'clock in the morning. Like, Here's a Bible verse for the day. Uh, we, we have a little break in the songs in Caleb that's just like, just because the kids are screaming and the phone's ringing don't mean that God ain't bringing you a miracle. And we're like, okay. And like, that's it. That's, that's what we get in, in our kind of standardized culture of God. It's like two singular blips on a radar a day. And if that's the new means of paying attention to God, it's no wonder we're not hearing from the Holy Spirit. We're far too busy. We're far too distracted. We have far too much going on to hear about what God is doing and how God is doing it. We just do not pay attention. You could even take this and contrast it back 150 years ago and see some dynamic differences. 
the modern cadence of life is vastly different today than what it was throughout all of human history before this point. So have you ever read, like uh, Mother Teresa or Charles Spurgeon, uh, that they would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and pray? You guys heard like statistics like that? And think, man, they were so much more holy than me. I wish I could be that holy. And like fair, they, they did wake up really early. Also, did you know they went to bed at 7 o'clock in the evening? Because there was no electricity. So like what do you do, whittle by candlelight? No, you go to bed when the sun goes down and you wake up with the sun. In fact, uh, historians have gone back and found that the average American, I'd mentioned this a couple uh, months ago, the average American before the invention of the light bulb slept 11 hours a night. You guys know how much the average American sleeps today? Seven. How many of you got seven hours of sleep last night? Statistically, less than, or half of you did not, right? Do you see how different our cadence of life is compared to the cadence of life even Jesus lived? You could even go back just 50 years before this and find crazy, mind-boggling facts. Uh, I mentioned this one before, too, but in 1967, there was a Senate subcommittee that was appointed to deal with the anticipated problem of too much leisure time. And so in 1967, we have this committee presenting in the minutes of our National Senate record reporting in their estimation that, quote, by 1985, the average American will only work 21 hours a week for 27 weeks a year and would retire at the age of 38. We're a little off. Things have not worked out the way we anticipated them. And and in fact, we're light years beyond the light bulb now to the age of internet and smartphone and Alexa, which is all supposed to assist our lives. We are busier, and at the same time, we are more tired than seemingly any generation that has come before us. You can just look at the statistics. We are more anxious. We are more depressed. We are more burnt out. So what is the threat to the church? Revelation 2, Jesus comes in and he's speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he tells the church in Ephesus, hey, you've abandoned your first love. And if you don't get back to it, I will put out your light. It seems to me that the threat to the church has really never been outside the church. God has always been able to persevere through even the most devastating persecutions. What has always eliminated the church has been its own ability to get distracted and fail to make the main thing the main thing. So what if? Could it be that we're losing our connection to the Holy Spirit because we are so self-inflicted with busyness? And it could it be that that disconnect with the Holy Spirit is playing a part in this decline we're watching in the church? And even more importantly, perhaps most importantly, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Absolutely. But rather than just diving into one particular passage, we'll do that next week. Uh, I want to point out a pattern to you, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. It's all over all of the Gospels, and I call this the pattern of eremos. If you don't know what eremos means, that's okay. It's a Greek word. I'll explain it to you. So we're going to start off in Mark chapter 1, talk about a couple key passages there, jump to Mark chapter 6, and then we'll bring this whole thing home. The Gospel of Mark is what I imagine, it's like riding one of those like bungee rides where they pull you down and then just like launch you straight up in the air. 
Mark does not have a slow start. There's no birth narrative. It's just like one to a hundred miles an hour as fast as you can possibly go. Mark 1 tells the story of Jesus' baptism, Jesus' wilderness temptation, Jesus' first few weeks of ministry, all bundled up into one chapter. Mark is just going, calling disciples, doing miracles. Here's everything Jesus did. But in chapter 1, verse 12, we get this quick little verse about the wilderness temptation. So Jesus is baptized, and in verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The word wilderness is this Greek word, eremos. It can mean what wilderness? It can mean desolate place. It can mean deserted place. Some even translate this the lonely place. And it shows up way more than just this story when we take apart the Bible and look for it. In fact, in the Gospels, it shows up over and over again. So Jesus goes off to the wilderness, to the deserted place. If you've read the Bible, you know the story. He's tempted by Satan. He overcomes the temptation when no man before him ever has. He he stands firm on his relationship with God through the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's this reality that the Bible has already given us that the wilderness is where God encounters people. It happens with Moses, it happens with Elijah, and it happens right here with Jesus. And then you get to chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, and Jesus is gone. He's been calling his disciples, call, uh, driving out unclean spirits. In verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to Simon Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went, he took her by the hand and raised her up, and the fever left her, and she began serving them. And then when evening came, after the sun had set, they had brought him all of those who were sick, sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick and with various diseases, drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. If you don't understand what that means, that means Jesus just had a work day. I mean, Jesus ran a 12-hour shift. He was going. And so what does Jesus do in response to this life of busyness and hurry that he has? Well, look at verse 35. Early in the morning... While it was still dark, he got up and went out and made his way to a deserted place. What do you think the word for that deserted place is? Eremos. It's the exact same word used in verse 12 for when Jesus goes into the wilderness. So once again, Jesus, having experienced one of the most busy days, right at the very beginning of his ministry, what is his response? Slow down. He gets away. He goes to pray. His identity is not tied to his productivity. It's not tied to his efficiency. It's tied to his relationship with the Father. And so for Jesus, it is vital that he gets away from this and goes and spends time in the Oremos. Luke 5, 15, 16 says it this way, but news about him spread even more and large crowds would come together to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. And then Luke says this, yet he often withdrew to deserted places, to the Eremos, and prayed. When you read the Gospels, you find over and over again that Jesus prioritizes his compassion ministry and prioritizes caring for the hurt and the outcasts, and he takes naps. Jesus is absolutely okay taking a nap on a boat. Jesus knew how important it was to preach and evangelize about the kingdom of God, and he was bringing every opportunity he could to tell people about this, this truth And he took vacation days, and he got up on mountaintops and prayed. 
And, and for Jesus, slowing down is just as important as ministry and preaching and evangelism and working. And Jesus does this repeatedly in a culture that is far slower than the modern American culture. Because the Jewish culture already has a mechanism to slow down instilled into it. We call it Sabbath. So every Saturday, it wasn't just that like you would kind of take off work, but the entire city would shut down. You would have to have all your food made the Friday night beforehand, and no one worked. And not only did you have Sabbath, but you had three separate festivals every year that would go from Sabbath to Sabbath, so eight-day cycles where no one would work. They would feast and enjoy life together. So Jesus lived life that every Saturday was a day off, and he took three vacation weeks a year. I'm being somewhat overreaching in that, but... Do you understand that Jesus' life in its own culture was far slower than ours, and yet he still felt the need to slow down? He still felt the need that in his relationship with the Father to get away from the chaos of the world and get alone with God. For Jesus, being in touch with and in tune with the Holy Spirit demanded slowing down from that cadence of life. But Jesus doesn't just do this himself. If you go to Mark chapter 6, Jesus tells his own disciples to do this. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends out his disciples to do what he was already doing, to encourage them and teach them and have them go and start doing the ministry that he's prepared for them. So he sends them out. It gives us a story about the death of John the Baptist. And then it comes back to that story and his disciples return. And they're going to give this little report for what had all gone, gone on. And it's this wonderful point of celebration. It's encouraging. It's good. So verse 30 kicks that off. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him, all they had done and taught. And what we find out is that all the crowds that they had reached have now followed him back to Jesus. I mean, if their whole ministry was, hey, you guys need to know about this man that I've spent the last year with and everything that he's taught me. And they're like, I gotta meet this guy. And it makes sense that all of a sudden these whole crowds are coming back with them to visit with Jesus. In fact, the second part of verse 31 says, many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Is that a similar feeling that you have ever had? You just have days that you're coming and going, and you don't even feel like you have time to eat. What is Jesus' solution for his disciples? Look at verse 31. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place. You guess what that word is? Let's go to the Aramos. Let's get out of this hustle and bustle. Let's slow down. Now, if you follow the story, they get in the boat and they sail off, and the crowd anticipates where they're going to go. So the crowd runs around the shore and meets them there, and that kind of ruins their vacation plans. But Jesus shows up, and Jesus, having compassion for them, chooses to teach them because Jesus always loves people first. But he teaches them, and he loves them, and this is the story of feeding the 5,000. And then Jesus finally says, all right, disciples, you get on the boat, go rest, head off. And then what does Jesus do? Verse 45, immediately he made his disciple get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethesda. And he dismissed the crowd and he said goodbye to them and went away to a mountain to pray. Not the word of Ramos, I admit, but what does Jesus do? He gets away to the wilderness. He slows down to pray. Now there are plenty of examples all throughout the Gospels of this pattern. But here's what I want you to understand. A life of discipling Jesus, 
a life of living the way Jesus lived, a life of serving God, demands that we slow down. To pay attention to the Holy Spirit, we must slow down. Now, this stands in total opposition to everything we hold valuable in our culture. Because just take the word slow. The word slow is not a good word in our culture, right? If someone is kind of lacking intelligence, we call them slow. If the, the service at the restaurant wasn't very good and we're never going back, we refer to that restaurant service as uh, it was the food was all right, but the service was slow. If you go and watch the most recent Batman movie, it was a horrible movie because it was DC, not Marvel. No, because it was slow, in my opinion. I was like, this movie's so slow. I'm so bored, right? We don't like the word slow. But Jesus' solution to the times of hectic chaos to his disciples and in his ministry was not, let's figure out how to make this more efficient next time. It wasn't, hey, let's, let's get away and go binge watch Stranger Things season four for a little bit. Just four or five hours of TV will fix this problem for us right up. Jesus' solution was, let's go practice slowing rest. Now, we'll talk about more about how to do that in particular next week. But go back to the opening question with me that I opened the sermon off with. What is the biggest threat to the church? Most of the time, when we ask that question, we think far too wide. The threat to the church is large and it's abstract because the church in itself, universal church, is large and abstract. And so that question becomes quickly unanswerable when we ask it that way. But we can personalize that question quite a bit more because guess who makes up the church? You make up the church. So the question then when we ask, what is the biggest threat to the church, could also be asked, what is the biggest threat to your relationship with God? What's the thing tomorrow morning that's going to prevent you from spending time with God? I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's not monster energy drink. Don't think it's militant Islam. I I'm sorry, but if, if the liberal left is the reason you don't read your Bible tomorrow, that's not their fault, it's yours. What is the biggest threat to your faith? And make the list however big you feel is necessary, but might I suggest somewhere at the very top is probably busyness and distraction. That statistically speaking, the first thing you're likely to do tomorrow is wake up, reach over for your phone, and look at whatever the news is saying whatever Instagram has to say, or whatever emails you may have missed the days before. There's a, a, a journalist, his name's Andrew Sullivan. He's a theologically dissenting, self-proclaimed Roman Catholic. And by that, I mean, like, don't listen to his theology. It's trash. Just don't, don't look up that. But he, he wrote an article a while back, and, and this is a quote from it. I thought it was interesting. Modernity slowly weakens spirituality by design and accident in favor of commerce. It downplayed silence, being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproven the improvable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might end or endure or be reborn. And then he says this, If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism but distraction, perhaps they may begin to appeal to a new, frazzled, digital generation. 
See, historically, revival has always happened when the church offers something that culture does not have. Revival has always happened when the church can offer something the culture does not have. Now, obviously, that always begins with the gospel. The gospel is number one. There is no redemption from sins. There is no forgiveness of sins outside the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and putting your faith in that. That is number one forever and for always and will forever be unchanging. But the implications of that and how it affects and what it looks like as compared to culture has changed and has been edited in some ways. So and when you take on the early church, the thing that was just so drastically different about the early church is that it was a place where it was multi-ethnic, and multi-class, so you could have Greek and Hebrew sitting down and having a meal together. You could not find that anywhere else at that time period. You could find lunches where slaves and free men would sit together and enjoy. Male and female would have meals with one another. That was crazy to that world. And it's the thing that started piquing interest, and people would say, why, why are those people eating with those people? That doesn't make sense to me. And they would go in, and they would say, what's happened here? And guess what they would find? Oh, there's this guy named Jesus that died for your sins and has totally changed the way we live life. It has radically influenced us. Let me tell you, and the church started to grow. If you go back to the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther, what you find is that there was this invitation of knowing God personally without the need of a priest or sacrament. You didn't have to go to a church to receive forgiveness. You could just go to God as an individual. And this was unthinkable to the world around them. And all of a sudden, the church began to grow because it was something culturally different. The, the Jesus movement of the 70s was that God had this incredible way of joining together the hope of the gospel with, like, long hair and rock music. And it was, like, crazy as people started following Jesus. So here's my question. What if the gospel is calling us to rebel against success culture defined in the constant pursuit of busyness? What if the church becomes a place where people can experience first the forgiveness of sins and second, a culture of slowing down and experiencing God the way Jesus leads us to experience God? What if the barricade standing between us and the Holy Spirit isn't Disney or, or liberalism or postmodernism first, but it is our own self-inflicted everlasting state of hurry? If that's the case, how do we slow down? We could spend hours talking about that. I won't, but I'll close out with this. You have to find a pattern of a Ramos. Finding the pattern of a Ramos. Now, you might be saying, Philip, there's no mountains for me to get off to. Like, it's flat. Where, where do I go find out? Did you want to go sit on a hill? Is that? I'm not telling you need to go take an all-day trip. Now, maybe that's what God wants you to do. Hey, take a day, get away, and just spend it with a Bible and God. Wonderful can't do that because you got kids or life's a little bit too crazy for that that's okay maybe it is waking up in the morning and rather than looking at your phone it's looking at your bible first maybe it's charging your phone in another bedroom maybe it's doing this where you turn your phone on emergency mode so that literally the only thing it can do is text messages and calls and that's it i know that sounds pretty dang ridiculous doesn't it because it sounds ridiculous to me and so this week I decided, I'm going to try it. I'm going to charge my phone in my kitchen instead of my bedroom tonight so that when I wake up, I can't look at my phone. It was like having drug withdrawals. Like I'm laying in bed thinking, like, what if someone texts me? What if something happens at the church? What if I need to get a hold of that 
And like my brain, I didn't even sleep good that night because my brain's just like running through the thousand scenarios where I need my phone. And then I woke up in the morning and guess what I didn't do? I didn't reach for my phone because it wasn't there. Now granted, I, I'm still struggling with it. So it's like, uh, maybe every other night I'll charge it in here. But what I'm saying is, what if this is what's threatening the church more than many of us really even know? What if this has distracted us into oblivion so that we can't even listen to the Holy Spirit because, hey, God, you, you already got my five minutes and you sent me that push notification, but I don't care about that anymore. So what if the thing that the gospel is calling us to do that's so anti-culture that it sounds borderline ridiculous to people that hear it is that we become a place that says, no, no, life has a different cadence here at First Baptist. We go slow. We let God speak. We pay attention. It may seem weird. It may even seem ridiculous. But so did the early church sharing meals from Greek to Jew. So did Martin Luther's idea of asking God directly for forgiveness. So what if our cadence of life looked noticeably different than the world's? It will demand that we pay attention to the eternal Holy Spirit existing before creation who demands we slow down and listen. And maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you're already doing well at that. <laughs> Philip, I don't even know how to use my phone most of the time, so not a problem for me. That's awesome. Teach us. Because I've had one of these since I was 14 years old, and it is stuck in my pocket. I've had the same phone number since I was 14 years old. Like, this is an appendage to me. And from all the good that it brings, I have to ask myself, how much is it distracting me from what God's trying to do in my life? And maybe you're dealing with the same thing. And maybe it's not your phone, maybe it's your job. Maybe it's not your job, maybe it's just the hobbies you do, maybe it's the television at home, maybe it's the news, maybe it's Facebook, maybe it's something else. But might I just say, it might be a good time to just really quickly run a little bit of a standard and say, where am I spending most of my hours each week? Do a calculation. And this isn't a classic, like, if you're spending more time on the internet than your Bible, then, but to say, maybe the reason I'm not hearing from God is because I'm spending more time on Facebook than my Bible. And then to ask, what do I really want in this life? Because I'm telling you, the gospel has not freed us to become just like everyone else in the world around us. The gospel has freed us to be like Jesus, who found multiple reasons to get away to the Eremos, to find peace with God the Father. And maybe you just need to do that for a few minutes this morning. We're going to have a time of just response and invitation. If, if that's something you're like, man, I just want to take this time and pray. You can stay seated. You can just pray. You can come to the altar. Just take a few minutes right here and right now. God, I need help. Help me to slow down and focus on you. Father God, we're grateful for the gospel that tells us that there is a different way to live life. We are not locked in to the productivity idea that our net worth, our value is always tied to our efficiency, our productivity. God, it is tied to your grace and your glory. So God, help us to be a church that knows that and believes that in the way we act and the way we live. God, help us to know your goodness. And God, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know that grace, that they're just wondering what it even means to experience the forgiveness of sins in the gospel, God, help them to come and see what all that means right here and right now. It's in Christ's name we pray.